Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Busy day today, rocket attacks from Iran into Iraq near the U.S. consulate, near a U.S. military base. A lot of people wondering what that is about. Well, we've got a former member of the CIA clandestine division. He is one of the premier experts on all things Iran. His name is Raul Mark Correct. He's going to be here in the second half of the show to make sense of it. And is there going to be a nuclear deal? Will Iran be a nuclear power? Lots of hard questions and rolls up to the task of answering that. But before, we're going to get started with something a little different. So many of you have texted me in the last year or so, messaged me saying, can you please make sense of Bitcoin cryptocurrency? What's going on? Well, I thought right after Thursday, Friday's important action by President Joe Biden to issue an executive order, start getting banks in the cryptocurrency industry working together. It would be a good time to try to dive into that. What is Bitcoin? Where is it going? Why does China want to have a cryptocurrency? Where is it for us? Is it an investment tool? Is it a currency? Well, I got news for you. We have the perfect expert here joining us in just a few short seconds is Matthew Pines. He's at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, really a tremendous resource on all things cryptocurrency. He's going to help explain all of the important developments, whether it's China, Russia, the Biden administration, Congress, an extremely extraordinary moment in our history on changing of how we're going to buy and create value in our markets. This cryptocurrency is clearly going to be a role. We know it because China just created the digital one. That's no surprise. There's a reason for that. So Matt Pines is going to help us understand that. And then we're going to go to the often scary world of Iran to understand our options, which, by the way, are shrinking each day and each month as Iran gets closer and closer to that nuclear weapon and role. Correct. We'll make all the sense in the world about that very issue. All right, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll have Matt Pines up first, Bitcoin, followed by Rule Correct and a great discussion about Iran. All right, be right back after this message. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So 
you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As promised in the introduction, we are going to take a dip, a deep dive into cryptocurrencies. A lot of you are wondering and saying, what is that? Some of you already own it. Maybe you have Ethereum or Bitcoin uh, or one of the others. Uh, well, we have the right person to make sense of it. Why Joe Biden took action last week, why China wants to get into it and where this country is headed with its uh, cryptocurrencies. Joining me right now is Matthew Pines, uh, a fellow for National Security and International Policy at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Matt, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start. Now, there's some people I know already invest in, in cryptocurrency who listen to the show, and some are saying, I just can't figure out for the life of me what this cryptocurrency is. Could you just give us a quick primer on the difference between the paper dollars and coins we have in our pocket and wallet and cryptocurrency? Certainly. Uh, and I'll try to keep it relatively high level. I'm not going to try to uh, go too much into the technicalities. Um, so essentially, the, the term cryptocurrency is, is a little bit of a misnomer to a certain extent. And I think the executive order uh, uses the term digital assets. And I think from a regulatory perspective, that's how they're treated. They're treated as, as assets. They're treated as, as property. Uh, and so the, the IRS treats Bitcoin uh, as property. The Commodities Futures Trading Commission treats Bitcoin as, um, as a commodity. Uh, there is some regulatory ambiguity over the, the sort of status of a bunch of these other uh, kind of quote unquote uh, coins, whether they're properly considered securities or not. That's part of the kind of the, re the regulatory debate. But, but when it really comes down to it, uh, there are a form of an asset that is secured using uh, cryptography. So uh, they take advantage of the fact that you can uh, construct certain types of, of, of computer programs that are really difficult to break. Uh, and that uh, basically you can uh, expend energy in order to prove that you've done a certain amount of work. And so the Bitcoin protocol, which is sort of the foundation upon which sort of the broader crypto world exists, 
takes advantage of that kind of this unique property of 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 of, of these algorithms. Uh, and so it's essentially a form of, of digital property, a digital asset. So you can kind of make a claim to uh, a certain amount of value in this digital network uh, and be able to uh, store and trade it as if it was any form of property. And so money, as we all know, is, is also digital. I mean, the money that you see in your, in your bank account is a digital ledger entry, right? Essentially, it says you are owed this much by your bank. You can show up there and get it in paper notes. But most of modern societies don't really use much paper notes anymore. And so all of the money is still digital. The difference really is the difference between uh, a ledger entry that's centralized at a bank and a ledger entry that's decentralized on uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of different computers. And so the Bitcoin network is really just a network of different uh, uh, computers that each have a copy of this ledger. It says who owes and who owns what. Uh, and so instead of having a centralized bank ledger, that's at you know, Bank of America, uh, every participant in the network has their own full copy of that ledger. And so the protocol basically keeps track of who owns and who owns what part of of, of the Bitcoin network, and that is what's called a Bitcoin. And so it's essentially not fundamentally different than, than most money systems. It's just the fact that it's decentralized on multiple different computers around the world that makes it uh, sort of uh, fundamentally different than sort of these centralized ledgers that, that we call kind of fiat money. And so that's kind of the, the high-level view. Uh, since Bitcoin was first created in, in, in 2008 and was launched in 2009, because the code is open source, anyone can copy it and can generate kind of their own their own versions of it, uh, there, have, there has been a proliferation of, of hundreds of thousands of, of, of sort of Bitcoin imitators and other kind of uh, you know, different versions of the protocol that have been kind of uh, created over time. Bitcoin is still kind of treated as the, as the foundational kind of uh, core of that broader system. Uh, it's kind of the, the original. And so it's kind of has by far the largest market share. Uh, but there's also the kind of speculative fervor over, you know, what's the latest coin going to do? And so uh, kind of, you know, there's a very different part of the market between the folks that kind of buy and hold Bitcoin for the long term and people who kind of trade in and out as kind of speculative uh, uh, kind of gamblers, just like you see in, in all these uh, different types of markets. So, yeah. so that's like Bitcoin and those things. And then the government, obviously, I think the EO talked about a central bank digital currency. And that is kind of the next evolution of where this is all going. Uh, and so we can get into that if you have questions about that. But, uh, but that would be a, a kind of the, the, the piece that was um, prefigured in the executive order. Yeah, I had someone say to me recently, uh, you know, we, we're used to having stocks in our uh, investment portfolio and dollars to buy things. But the Bitcoin is kind of a combination of both, right? You have the ability mm -hmm. to create wealth and investment through buying different Bitcoins. And then you can also use the Bitcoins potentially in the future to really buy things and pay for things. And obviously, some places you can even do that today. And so one of my friends said, well, it was like the 1800s. I'd bring two bags of flour in <laughs> and I'd buy a goat and we would just trade. And, and I guess it's a digital version of that. But uh, last week, President Biden took a pretty significant action, uh, issued an executive order to try to kind of play quarterback, I think is the right way to look at this, and get the banks in the Bitcoin world working together on common ground, on common principles. Why was that such a significant moment? Certainly. And I think they recognize that uh, this, this asset class is not going away. And so uh, it has grown dramatically in the past few years and is now you know, a significant percentage of, of, you know, in terms of total market cap of, of gold total value. And yet it, the government has not really come out with a very formal or organized policy on it. It's sort of been left into the sort of technocratic weeds of specific agencies to come up with policies. Um, and it's changing so fast and it's growing so fast that the government, I think rightly, 
kind of is trying to get their arms around it in a coordinated way. So the fact that there was this executive order that came out is a, is a positive sign that they're sort of waking up to the reality uh, on the ground and they recognize they need to get smart. Uh, and the, but the EO also is, I think, just the first step in what's going to be a longer process as the government you know, tries to understand all the, all, all the details and, and the sort of um, implications of this uh, asset class for the, for the different regulatory responsibilities. And so really what it calls for is a whole series of reports, essentially. Uh, all the different arms and legs of the government with their different responsibilities are now, are now tasked with uh, developing a series of reports on specific topics to try to help inform you know, potential future policy. And so the significance of the EO really is, is in that. It's the fact that uh, now there's a formal instruction from the president to, to the whole government essentially saying uh, we have to get smart on this and we have to start to craft some intelligent policy. Uh, and so that's where the kind of the, the, the jury's out in terms of whether that policy will, in fact, be uh, smart. Um, but I think uh, uh, at least I'm cautiously uh, optimistic right now. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people took it as a, a good move and, and uh, it generated a lot of excitement. Now, there are the coins and the the asset that you own, and now there is an effort, I think, to develop a currency from that. Describe the evolution of owning the asset to eventually having a digital currency that makes purchasing on, you know, next time you go on uh, uh, eBay or, or um mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon, you might not need your credit card. You might just pay with your Bitcoin. Describe a little bit about the evolution of digital currency. Certainly. And so you can think about three functions of money, right? And historically, it sort of usually progresses along a certain path. But you know, the first thing, it has to be a good store of value. It's, it's some monetary good that you want to hold into the future to be able to you know, preserve your purchasing power. So you, you earn something, you store your wealth in something, and you, you expect to be able to convert that something into a useful good or service sometime you know, into the future. So that's like a store value function. Um, the next key function is it needs to be a good medium of, of exchange, right? You need to actually be able to take it to the market, to the different goods and service providers and say, hey, I've got this, uh, I've got this monetary good. I'm going to give it to you in exchange for that good or service. Um, but to really be useful there, it needs to have relatively low volatility. And so that's where Bitcoin right now is still climbing that path from kind of a store of value towards that medium of exchange where it's got high, such high volatility that it's not something that you really would use to sort of go to the grocery store or, or pay for gas. And so that's really where kind of the complementarity between Bitcoin as kind of a long-term store of value, kind of like a digital savings account and, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar and digital forms thereof that are going to kind of be, be existing in kind of complement to each other. And so a digital dollar, the ones that have been sort of highlighted by the, uh, by the executive order as, quote, unquote, a central bank digital currency, it really depends exactly how it's, how it's implemented. There's versions of that where for the average end user consumer, they would, know, they would notice almost no difference, uh, essentially, where there's versions of it where it's just like a, a wholesale CBDC, uh, as it's called, which just basically is like internal to the banking system, you know, between J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Goldman Sachs. And so really the retail customer doesn't even – uh, touch that CBDC. It's just a sort of like a back-end payments upgrade for the banking system. But there are versions of it where it's a, a retail uh, CBDC, where, where actual individuals in the economy essentially have a digital token issued to them from the government, uh, and most implementations would be from the Federal Reserve directly. So instead of you going uh, essentially uh, through the banking system to the Fed, uh, you would have a direct account at the Fed. And so essentially you have uh, potentially like a, like a digital wallet, like an app on your phone that would allow you to spend that uh, Fed coin uh, just as like you could spend, uh, you know, the uh, like, well, like, like if you swipe your debit card. Um, and there's going to be a lot of debate over that. I think the, the, the details are kind of really 
uh, technical and and are going to be complicated, especially you know the, between the, the role of the banking system, the Federal Reserve, the Congress, uh, and how all this shakes out. But that is going to be where there's going to be uh, intense debate and study. Uh, you know, a big part of the executive order was a pretty direct instruction from the president to to his agencies to sort of um, put together a technical roadmap and kind of a, a sort of a series of, of of frameworks for what the CBDC could look like. And and he also encouraged the Federal Reserve to sort of take another look at, at, at a CBDC. Um, and so that there does seem to be some movement in that direction. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, uh, but they are going to start, uh, you know, laying out some of those more details um, uh, about what that CBDC could look like uh, in the near future. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So 20 years from now, am I going to have dollar bills in my wallet anymore? Or are we going to be all digital? Ooh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I, it's It's hard. It's hard to say, you know, it's kind of up to us. Uh, I, I think the trends are slowly moving more towards the digital world. I mean, there's already countries right now, I think Sweden has eliminated cash entirely. It's uh, amazing, moved, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of on the vanguard of kind of a digital society entirely um, where, you know, they have a, they have kind of a, a CBDC model, but they also have sort of like a really well-developed kind of financial technology kind of banking system. And, you know, but they're also these small, but, but that's, you know, that's kind of a test case for how this, how this works. Um, now there is downsides, right? You do have, you know, challenges when it comes to privacy, right? Cash is a private form of money. It's not traceable. It doesn't create kind of a, um, you know, any sort of, uh, uh, you know, record of it. And, you know, that can be used for good and for bad. And I think one of the key debates around a CBDC is going to be what are the privacy implications? Can it be implemented in a way that doesn't, um, you know, uh, kind of it, kind of conflict with our understanding of what uh, kind of individual uh, privacy and, and kind of the rights that we have uh, in the current monetary system, make sure those aren't, those aren't uh, harmed in this, in this sort of digital transition. I think that's going to be a key thing to keep an eye out for. Oh, without a doubt. Really fascinating to look at that. Now, um, China did two things at the start of the year in connection with its um, Olympics. It rolled out its digital one. And so that is out there now. People were seeing it during the Olympics as part of it. And then it banned other cryptocurrencies from sort of entering the Chinese market. What is going mm -hmm. on with China and what is its long-term goal? Yes. So China clearly sees themselves as a rising power who wants to have peer status with the United States. That's kind of their geostrategic objective. Um, now, I don't think they recognize that it's, it's feasible in the immediate term to sort of supplant the role of the U.S. dollar. Um, but I do think they have a pretty determined strategy that really launched formally in 2013 when their holdings of U.S. Treasury securities peaked and they rolled out this massive uh, program of dollar-denominated uh, overseas lending called the Belt and Road Initiative. And that has been a program by which they've you know, gone around the world making loans and, and securing kind of hard assets, infrastructure, land, uh, ports, et cetera, in, in different countries uh, that, you know, are key parts of um, kind of trade uh, kind of sphere of influence. The next phase of that kind of uh, project to expand their sphere of influence is a digital currency. So it has both a domestic and an international uh, role. Domestically, uh, their, their, their digital yuan is really a component of, of their overall objective to try to maintain social harmony, which requires, you know, being able to keep track of what everyone's doing, which includes what they're spending their money on. And so this allows them to kind of maintain that surveillance system, that kind of panopticon of being able to, you know, enforce, uh, you know, party, party instruction uh, and be able to manage uh, this sort of state capitalism uh, in, in as a controlled way as they can. So it's really key to their domestic 
kind of uh, political objectives to keep kind of the system that they're that they're managing internally stable. But they do have objectives to internationalize the role of the yuan in certain commodities trade and, and that BRI sphere of influence. And that's where the digital yuan does help them uh, because it does allow them to kind of incrementally denominate uh, those sorts of commodity trade in yuan without without going through the dollar system and be able to kind of clear those transactions through those kind of China specific payment rails. And so that is a that is a is a threat to the U.S. system that has been recognized by by the U.S. government, by by our allies, uh, both as sort of a, a monetary competitor, but also just a, a kind of strategic competitor uh, as it sort of gets gets its hooks into different countries uh, around the world. And so that that is, I think, going to be a, a a line of competition between a U.S. dollar based system and a sort of rising China competitor in some of these areas of the world uh, where the digital yuan is going to sort of come up against uh, kind of the legacy system. It's just really remarkable. We have a massive national debt of $30 trillion, probably headed to $32 trillion in the next two years, constant deficits, uh, spiraling inflation uh, right now, and no sign that that's going to end anytime soon, and a fear of stagflation. How can cryptocurrencies uh, potentially bring some stability into this picture? I, some people say this, this is a, a good opportunity to balance your portfolio and move into mm-hmm. cryptocurrency because the dollar could become weak. What what do mm-hmm. you see as the um, the role that cryptocurrency will play in a very uncertain inflati- inflationary time frame in American history? Certainly. Well, I'm, I'm a financial advisor, so don't take this as, as, as individual advice. Um, right. but, for the, for, but, for, but for the national interest, I do think it, does, it can play an important role, especially in the, next, uh, in, in the coming years. Um, so the key aspect of, of Bitcoin is it's a neutral reserve asset. Essentially, it's a, it's a commodity like gold in the sense that it's not anyone's liability. So unlike the U.S. Treasury, which is the liability of the U.S. government, uh, Bitcoin and gold are, are considered what's called outside money. Uh, so essentially, they do not have any counterparty risk. And in a global trade system, that has typically that type of asset has typically been what what has sort of formed the foundation for global trade. Post World War II, you know, America was so strong, uh, we were able to kind of center the world system around us. And then in 1971, when we sort of left that gold dollar peg, it was just free floating currencies uh, with the U.S. Treasury at the foundation. And that worked for 50 years. But now I think we're reaching the end stage of that system. And now the question is what comes next. And, and there's some, you know, well, well-respected analysts on Wall Street who see, you know, the, the era of this dollar-based uh, treasury reserve system is, is seeming uh, to show uh, cracks. Uh, and then the question is, what does the, what does the next sort of system uh, shift to? Uh, and I think there's a plausible argument to be made that, that Bitcoin can play a role there, especially in the fact that if the world goes back to some sort of gold-based commodity, sort of uh, multipolar currency system, that advantages Russia and China and India who have large gold gold reserves, just like we do, but essentially net-net, it's a rebalancing of power. Now, Bitcoin is, a, is just like gold in the sense it's a neutral reserve asset, obviously much more novel in certain respects. Um, but it's a reserve asset that we actually happen to have uh, a large, uh, if not disproportionate share uh, uh, of holdings in. So we probably have a plurality, if not the majority of actual Bitcoin custodied in the United States. We have uh, at least a plurality of, of the Bitcoin mining hash share, essentially the sort of activity that generates new Bitcoin uh, is mostly uh, uh, sort of onshore in, in the United States. So 
Uh, it, it's hard to play this out like in, in, in short term. Certainly, Bitcoin is not going to be a substitute for gold uh, and kind of the central bank reserve system. But you can see over the coming decade, uh, you know, Bitcoin has gone from nothing to, you know, a trillion dollar asset in a decade. So uh, going from a trillion dollars to 10 trillion uh, over the next decade is not outside the realm of possibility, which would put it sort of uh, on par with gold. Um, and so that, that I think is where the U.S. Uh, could sort of think creatively over the coming years about how to take advantage of the fact that we have this sort of disproportionate uh, advantage when it comes to the monetization of Bitcoin relative to gold. And if our adversaries are posturing for a complete shift in the global monetary system, how can we use Bitcoin to sort of mitigate any risks uh, that that shift could, uh, could, could expose us to? So that's at the national level. I mean, every individual, I think, will, will make their own decisions as they sort of are at different points in their in their uh, in their sort of financial life cycle, uh, how much risk and volatility they can expose themselves to, because this is not going to be a linear process. Bitcoin is exceptionally volatile. Uh, you know, the sort of uh, the sort of uh, you know level of familiarity you would have with kind of the, the daily swings of the stock market are going to pale in comparison to what you would see day to day on Bitcoin. So um, it kind of requires a longer term time horizon to to sort of think about it as part of any you know, personal or national portfolio. Absolutely fascinating. It really is. We're seeing some places now like Alto and others where you can uh, incorporate Bitcoin or currency, a cryptocurrency into your retirements. Is cryptocurrency becoming like gold and silver, one of those alternate ways to uh, diversify your retirement portfolios? Yeah, you are seeing a, a dramatic uh, kind of development just in the past year or so. Um, I know there's been a number of companies that have come out with kind of 401k offerings that allow you to hold Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies kind of, you know, in that tax advantaged fashion, and they're pretty user friendly. I've, I've seen some of those services come out. I've also heard some announcements uh, from some, you know, leading financial services firms like uh, Fidelity, maybe even Schwab and Morgan Stanley that are starting to offer Bitcoin products uh, to their customers and be able, I think they're going to might, might be integrating kind of, you know, your ability to buy and sell it into their normal kind of banking, uh, you know, kind of kind of interface, like when you log into your Schwab account, you know, you potentially will be able to, you know, just buy and sell Bitcoin and kind of hold it just like you have it in your normal uh, brokerage account. Uh, so I think you're going to see a lot more uh, of that kind of traditional financial uh, uh, products and services world start to incorporate Bitcoin and maybe some other kind of crypto offerings in, into their into their services. And it's sort of, it's keeping with this broader trend that's really accelerated in the past year of kind of the institutionalization of Bitcoin, kind of serious banks, Wall Street, uh, sort of financial services firms kind of finally getting on the bandwagon and, uh, and starting to sort of think about how they can incorporate this into their, uh, into, their, into their existing services. It's absolutely fascinating. But one of the most disruptive moments, and when I mean disruptive, I mean in a good sense, innovation moments in the uh, uh, currency and investment market. Uh, Matt, it's always complicated, but you made it sound really simple. I actually understand it better, and I know our listeners do too. And uh, we're going to have to watch it. This next year is going to be, I think, the year that Bitcoin makes its largest and most influential moves in the in the marketplace. So great to have your expertise and insights on this and hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you on. All right, folks, we're going to take a uh, quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a little bit of discussion about Iran, the Middle East, and its ties to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Right after this, commercial break. Folks, Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved 
Meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and so much more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutritional packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and easy. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. If you're like me and have a busy schedule that the last thing you want to worry about is what to eat or having to go to the grocery store, Factor makes it easy. As they are flexible to your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Plus, Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, usually in just two minutes. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash justnews50 and use the promo code justnews50 to get 50% off. That's the code justnews50 at factormeals.com. One more time, factormeals.com slash justnews50. Use the justnews50 code and you will get 50% off your first order. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As promised, a very special guest on a very important topic, the topic of Iran and the Middle East. Joining me right now is a senior, is the senior fellow from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a former member of the CIA's clandestine services, Real, uh, Real uh, Grecht. Real, great to have you on. My pleasure. A lot has happened in the last week. We had a warning from the intelligence community about Iran's potential interest in a terror attack on U.S. soil. We had some rockets over the weekend launched at um, up in the Erbil area of uh, Iraq that have been blamed on Iran. Iran took actually credit for it. And we have all these negotiations going on designed to get us a, a deal. Can you help us make sense of the dynamic? What's going on between America and Iran at this moment? Well, I, I think the Russians have thrown a, a wrench into the process that the Biden administration has been uh, arduously backing. That is the new nuclear negotiations in Vienna. It certainly appeared as if they were extremely close to a deal. Uh, the Iranian press, believe it or not, has been more reliable than the uh, Western press. Or certainly Isn't that American amazing? Press. Yeah. Yeah. In describing uh, the progress, and they seem to be pretty bloody close. There were still a few issues left, but the you know, the Russians obviously played a part in that. Uh, as with the JCPOA, they were expected to take possession of the 60% enriched uranium. So, and then Putin, you know, flipped it 
and said that uh, under no circumstances would uh, any sanctions that applied to Russia apply to Russia-Iranian deals, which meant and, and that Putin would be able to drive a semi right through <laughs> that sanctions exception. Yeah. Uh, a little so self-interest that, there. Yeah, definitely self-interest. It caught the Iranians by surprise. They were not expecting this. Uh, The Iranian foreign minister, I believe, is uh, in Moscow now or flying there shortly. So um, uh, in I, I, you know, this certainly caught the the Biden administration uh, by surprise. I I suspect that uh, an arrangement will be worked out. Either the Russians will uh, Russians may be deleted and the Chinese will have to come to the rescue, assuming they do. Though this could, uh, you know, delay things. Uh, until the summer, it's possible. Uh, also, not on the same level was uh, the statement made by the head of the IEA, Rafael Grossi, who said that uh, Iran still had unanswered questions. Again, that's not a huge problem because uh, uh, the Security Council members have been able to sort of run over the IEA at will. Um, so I would expect that to happen again. But still, uh, Grossi's statements in Tehran also suggest that there may be, uh, you know, reasons to delay a bit to work out these bureaucratic details. So yeah. right right now, um, I think it's it's suspended, which Amazing. poses a problem. I think that's probably a reason the Iranians were venting with the missile missiles in Erbil. Um, they they do that. Um, so I, uh, you know, they're, they're going to get, uh, crankier and crankier, but I think the Biden administration, uh, really wants this deal. They uh, don't want to deal with the Iran issue anymore. This will grant them, you know, a short surcease to their nuclear anxiety. And I, uh, I think they're fine with that. Uh, obviously if you were willing to be extorted in the JCPOA, uh, the uh, nuclear agreement under Barack Obama, you're willing to be extorted now, and it's the <laughs> same people then as it is now. That's a great point. So essentially, that's where it stands. An amazing time in, in history. One of my favorite books that you wrote years ago, and I've used it as a guide for many years, No Nine Enemy, a lot of misperception about the Iranian people versus the Iranian government, uh, the mullahs versus their uh, the, the populace. How much are misperceptions driving some of the decision-making and political pressure that occurs in this uh, debate over Iran? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I actually think it's interesting that the Biden administration is probably the first American administration since the Islamic Revolution in 1979 that hasn't gone looking for moderates. Um, uh, This has been a bipartisan reflex. And uh, I think uh, this time around, uh, whether it's because of the elevation of Ibrahim Raisi to the presidency and perhaps later the supreme leadership, the combination, really the, the hardcore domination of, uh, of Khamenei, his, his ability to purge people, the failure of, you know, the, uh, the, the in, essentially insurrections, massive de- uh, demonstrations that have occurred in Iran since 2009, right. uh, that uh, they, don't, they don't expect, they want a straight out, you know, a temporary deal. They're not uh, anticipating, as Barack Obama did, 
when he did the started the nuclear negotiations in 2012, he wasn't expecting that uh, somehow uh, you know commerce would soothe the savage beast and produce moderation, and that his own personal charisma, you know, would break through. Um, you know, four decades of animosity. I don't think there's any expectation. I suppose you might say they're less naive uh, than uh, than the Obama administration, but uh, they just want a flat-out deal. They pay money, get a short temporary surcease to, you know, the the regime's nuclear ambitions. Uh, I, you know, the the Iranians, you know, they don't suffer from as many misperceptions, though they do have a hard time uh, analyzing American politics, believe it or not. Fascinating. So, uh, I mean, for example, they didn't, they really didn't understand that an executive agreement with a Barack Obama was not binding. Yeah. Uh, they, they just didn't fully appreciate that. So if it doesn't uh, go through Congress. It isn't binding. Yeah. And they didn't, right. they didn't have it see that coming. Yeah. No, they really didn't fully appreciate it. They didn't fully appreciate, uh, you know, the way sanctions could be revived. I think in part because the, uh, it was obviously not in the Obama administration's interest, John Kerry's interest to, uh, you know, enumerate for them all the ways that uh, their deal could fall apart. Yeah. Uh, but they've learned. I mean, uh, obviously, the yeah, they're much Iranians more keen now have paid much closer attention, which is why I expect them to ask for essentially complete total sanctions relief at the beginning of any new nuclear deal, which, of course, once that happens, you know, um, they have all the high ground. Yeah. No. About three weeks ago, you had a really important column. I think one of the most important columns I've seen on Iran policy. And the headline is Republicans need an Iran policy, because the fact of the matter is over the last five years in the midst of the deal and then the repealing of the deal, uh, Iran really accelerated and got to a point where it's going to have a nuclear program. All we can do is maybe delay it. And so it's time for Republicans to get off the fence and decide what their uh, their strategy is. Uh, handicap the current Republican policy and what the options really are if they were to take the White House back in 2024. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the first issue would be uh, by the time, if that happens in 2025, uh, would uh, Iran still be in a pre-nuclear state? That is, they hadn't actually tested a nuclear weapon. Uh, if they, by that time, test a nuclear weapon, then, of course, uh, you have more or less uh, a completely different situation. You can't have the illusion that you can stop this thing. Um I think the Republicans are still largely wanting to walk away from dealing with uh, reality here because it's very painful reality. Uh, uh, There are a a lot of folks, if you look at the statements coming from uh, many Republicans, they still want to believe that they can introduce just further sanctions and somehow, you know, coerce the regime into uh, negotiating a good deal which permanently eliminates the nuclear threat or the regime cracks. Uh, I do think in the you know, midterm, I don't know about short term, but in the midterm, the, the, policy, the possibilities of the regime cracking aren't small, but they certainly aren't going to help you with the nuclear issue because the Iranians have just made so much bloody progress. I mean, one of the severe weaknesses of Barack Obama's nuclear deal 
we essentially didn't have any accounting for what the Iranians had stockpiled. Uh, and it's now clear, crystal clear now, that they have a very large stockpile of nuclear centrifuge components and miraging steel, which is necessary for the building of advanced centrifuges. Uh, so essentially, they're home free. Yeah. Which means you either accept the deal, and if you're willing to, or accept them going nuclear, and you're perhaps willing to engage in some type of containment strategy, think of the Soviet Union, right. or you military, you strike, you, right. uh, you try to prevent them from becoming a nuclear state. And it's also pretty clear now the Israelis aren't going to do it. I think that was a possibility, an option with Bibi Netanyahu. We know for sure that he once put it to a vote uh, in the cabinet. The prime minister alone doesn't have the authority to engage in such military action. And he was uh, voted down uh, in the Israeli cabinet. The president of the Israeli government doesn't nearly have uh, the willpower on this issue that Netanyahu had uh, for very understandable reasons. They're deeply conflicted. They don't want to alienate uh, a lot of folks in Washington, so particularly in the Democratic Party. Uh, so I think the the odds of any type of preventive Israeli strike have, have really shrunk pretty close to zero, uh, which would default it back uh, to the Americans. And I I just don't see that happening. I, I, uh, it's pretty hard to find anyone, including Senator Cotton now, uh, who talks about uh, preventive military strikes. In the past, he has, but he's not doing so now. Well, the truth of the matter is, too, Iran, if you read the intel reports, they seem to have really hardened their uh, nuclear sites in a way that it would be pretty hard, minus ground troops, to really create the sort of destruction that would set back the program. Well, the Americans could probably do it. That's we, true. We have, the bunker uh, we, bossers, we, right? We, yeah, we probably have uh, sufficient you know, bombs with sufficient pressure to collapse any cavern they might build. Uh, it's a big, big question mark whether the Israelis, who would essentially be limited to 5,000-pound bombs, right. uh, whether they could do it. I mean, there was that study done by very, very bright physicists at MIT who suggested that they could. But it would require, you know, perfect bombing runs. Yeah. And life usually isn't that perfect. Yeah, especially in war, <laughs> especially yeah. with anti-missiles yeah. coming at you, or anti-aircraft missiles, it makes it a lot harder. Right. You look out here, what is Iran's long-term atten- intention on our soil? There was a pretty stark warning from U.S. intelligence last week that Iran would like to strike on our soil, maybe to get back for the Soleimani uh, death, uh, perhaps to just shake our confidence or to throw our economy into further disarray. Uh, do they really want to pick a fight by launching a uh, an attack on our on our uh, soil? Well, I mean, the, the problem with uh, American responses to Iranian terrorism is that there really haven't been any. That's a great point. So uh, the Iranians have struck the Americans repeatedly since the revolution. Uh, killing a lot of folks. Uh, and each and every time uh, we have uh, turned the cheek, you might say. Right. Uh, I think the telling one, the really the decisive moment was uh, that set the pattern was in 1983 in the barracks bombing in Beirut, which we knew at the time no doubt. that the Iranians were responsible for. And uh, Secretary Schultz uh, argued uh, quite strenuously for military action but Casper uh, Weinberger, then the defense secretary, won the day. 
uh, and since then, um, you know, repeatedly the Iranians have gotten into very lethal, nefarious activity. Not yeah, Kobar towers, right? No doubt about that, right? Kobar towers uh, that we knew we knew for a fact what they were doing in Iraq against this. We knew they were right. they were actually building mock facilities uh, to train Iraqi radical Iraqi Shiites to kill us, uh, and we did nothing. And the Europeans have allowed the Iranians to get away with numerous assassinations on European soil. Yep. Uh, so the track record here of a stiff Western response has been pretty bloody awful. Uh, I'm skeptical about any type of uh, mass casualty terrorism launched by the, the Iranians in the United States. I think there is still sufficient fear of American capacity. Uh, assassinations come in a different category, certainly going after Iranian Americans or Iranians uh, resident in the United States is a different category. The Iranians have always viewed them as a different category. Right. But I don't think they would engage in the type of terrorism that, you know, Al-Qaeda executed and still dreams of. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a more limited scale. Are you surprised there hasn't been greater revenge to Soleimani's assassination? Uh, No, because they are scared of escalation. If you look at the Israeli actions against the Iranians in Syria, I think that's telling and decisive, and that the Israelis have been pummeling uh, revolutionary guard corps forces, missile forces in Syria. They have been tenaciously going at them. They changed, actually, the planning uh, that the Iranians uh, had for Syria. They wanted to build larger bases. They wanted to bring in medium-range missiles. Uh, and uh, the Iranians so far have either suspended or dropped those ideas. And that's because the Israelis escalated. And if one will note, the Iranians didn't escalate back. So Very they, didn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't attempt to unleash the Hezbollah against Israel. They didn't shoot missiles from Iran into Israel. They are, they are certainly scared of Israeli escalation. Uh, they have been, surprisingly, since we're a superpower, they've been less scared of us escalating. But I do think it, it, it's, it remains. So if they were to engage in any type of terrorist activity, activity or the use of missiles in any way that is truly lethal, uh, then increases the odds that uh, America might unleash what it unleashed, say, in 1988 when we sank the Iranian Navy. Right. So uh, that isn't gone. Uh, we, we haven't, I think, completely uh, evaporated uh, the awe that the United States uh, possesses. Uh, so uh, the Iranians are certainly willing to go after us. I think that you can't underestimate the pleasure that they have. Uh, when they when they kill us, uh, it really does give them a, as the French would say, a frisson. Uh, but uh, they prefer to do it in a deniable way. They prefer to act through proxies. That's the way the right. uh, Iranian system has been set up since the revolution: is to act through proxies, primarily Arab proxies. So, if 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 that is the modus operandi you you use it. Uh, it's the the amount of harm that can cause is limited. So the options are getting less. I mean, obviously the best option, I guess, short term would be a a deal that delays 
the inevitable, but the inevitable will eventually come. And then the options are either containment or some sort of large scale military action to to take out Iran. Uh, you argue that if Republicans want to do it, they should have done it before Trump left office in that article. Yeah. That, was that a missed opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the you know the stars had sort of aligned in favor of that option if we were going to do it. But you know, Trump was very erratic. I think if yeah. you talk to uh, particularly when it comes talk, to the use of military force. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think if you talk to John Bolton, you know, he was probably the most surprised when Trump gave the order to kill Qasem Soleimani, right? Because Bolton had asked him to do so uh, more than once. Uh, and uh, the president told him it was too provocative. Yeah. And then he changed his mind. <laughs> so yeah. it was a good thing he did, because uh, I think the damage that did, it restored, however briefly, fear of the United States, which is essential. And But, you know, it's that it, it, Trump was the high watermark, I would argue. It was the high watermark for sanctions, it was the high watermark for the possibility of using military force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to do these things, it's best to preempt very early. That's not the way democracies usually operate. Right. They usually pre, pre, they usually they don't preempt. Usually that <laughs> they, they go to war at the very last moment. One hopes it's not too late. Uh, but, you know, the sooner you, you, you would strike this program, obviously, the better, because the Iranians are building ec- ec- up expertise in a whole variety of ways. Yeah. They're expanding the the bench, the number of scientists who know how to do these things. So the longer you wait, the more likelihood that a bombing run won't make a difference. And I have to add, I mean, the Langley, the CIA has been telling the White House that if the Americans bombed, let alone the Israelis, if the Americans bombed, uh, you know, the Iranians would be able to reconstitute their nuclear weapons program within two months. Wow. Now, how much of a deterrence? I think that's a big guess on the part of Langley. I, I, I don't think they have the sources to really determine that with any precision. But the main issue is that any administration is going to be loath to ignore that estimate coming from Langley. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and if someone's telling you that, then the odds that the president of the United States is going to engage in a, a obviously risky military maneuver, I think, are pretty small. Yeah. Any chance, uh, last question I want to ask, any chance of regime change in Iran? And then what do the Sunni Arabs do? Are we headed towards a nuclear arms race in the Middle East? Well, I mean, I think regime change internally has, has been possible in Iran for quite some time. And the Iranian regime actually openly talks about it. There have been lots of leaked material, including senior Revolutionary Guard Corps commanders meeting, for example, after the massive pro-democracy demonstrations in 2009. But, you know, lessons learned, they put a a lot of that into operation uh, against the demonstrations in 2017 and 2019, particularly 2019, the ones that started with a, because of a decrease in fuel subsidies that really turned into certain provinces, almost into a full-blown insurrection. You know, they struck hard. Uh, they became very lethal. They killed. They, they, they machine gunned people. They used rape. Um, so the regime has demonstrated that, at least for the time being, it has the necessary brutality to keep them in power. Um, 
So I would say in the short term, it's not likely. In the mid to long term, yes, because the vast majority of the Iranian people are uh, disgusted by the theocracy. And I I don't think that's in doubt anymore. Um, And so it's obviously if the security services were to crack, Iran is a very large country. The security services are not large. uh, And you were to have troubles in multiple major cities in Iran, you know, it could shatter the regime. It's possible. It's just that it's very difficult to develop policy based on that possibility. Um, So far as the Sunni Arabs, I mean, Saudi Arabia will try, I think it's probably already tried, to buy a nuke from the Pakistanis. I suspect the Pakistanis said no. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have much of an industrial or scientific base. Right. So it would be extremely difficult for it them. It has to I do think. an acquisition or nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, they'll go to the Chinese, they'll try to buy it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's not going to be quick. Egyptians are in much too bad a shape, and I don't think they have any desire uh, to do that. The one that's likely to go nuclear are the Turks. Yep. The Turks are, have a much larger industrial base than Iran. They have a much more sophisticated, better educated, uh, technical elite uh, they have the capacity to do so. There have been a lot of reasons why they haven't done so in the past. Erdogan, if he's still around, has you know uh, made comments about uh, Turkey going nuclear. Um, so that's what I would expect uh, is that the Turkish Republic would become a, a, a nuclear power. You know, let's be frank that the, the Turks and the Iranians have been the dominant uh, Muslim peoples in the Middle East since the 10th century. That's right. Not the ninth century. So we're not, it was a, a brief, what you might call Arab interlude after uh, World War I. Uh, I think that that interlude is over and the Turks and the Iranians are once again the dominant peoples of the uh, Muslim peoples of the Middle East. Absolutely fascinating times. Rural, you make it all make sense uh, in what is often a complicated world and we're grateful for that. A lot of tough questions and a lot of tough decisions ahead for america and i think you laid them out really 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 well we're really glad that you could join us today my pleasure all right how do people follow what you do at fdd with all you do you're doing such great work you write columns what's the best way to stay in touch with your your great work well, just uh, go to the fdd website they uh they post most everything yeah. so uh, you can go there and they sure uh, do fdd.org and find it exactly yeah all right well great work we really enjoyed having you on today sir All right. My pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock provide the premier detection technology to protect your home 
and it's tidal. The instant they detect an activity or something suspicious, they mobilize to help shut it down. We won't know a thief took us off our title until it's too late. That's why Tidal Lock jumps into action right away. The titles to all our homes are easily found online. A criminal or renter, even a family member, can simply forge your signature on a home sale form. Then he or she refiles as the new owner and bam, your home is not in your name and all of a sudden debts are being taken out against it. That's why Home Title Lock is my choice. Find out for free when you use my code JUSTNEWS at signup. You'll get a free comprehensive scan of your home's title and 30 days of legendary Home Title Lock protection free. So go to HomeTitleLock.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's the promo code JUSTNEWS at HomeTitleLock.com. Go there today. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook uh, uh, vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down, and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you your 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick. House Nutrition, and of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Report. So glad that you could join us. So glad to have two really thoughtful guests. They are right on the cutting edge of two of the most important policies we are facing in America. What to do with Iran and what we're going to do with cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the like. Two great guests. I want to thank both Matt and Raul for their important insights and the time they took to make complicated issues sound kind of simpler, certainly. All right. Every day we have an opportunity and offer from one of our great partners. And today it's no different. Birch Gold Group, they're always making opportunities available to you, particularly related to your retirement. A volatile, unstable markets, rising inflation, rising food prices, uncertainty in the financial markets of the world. What do you do? Well, you turn to precious metals. And how do you do that? Well, if you want to learn how to protect your savings with physical precious metals, gold and silver, text Just News one word, to the number 989898 right now. And Birch Gold Group, our partners, will send you a no-cost, no-obligation info kit. This comprehensive 20-page guide reveals how you can even convert your IRA or eligible 401k into gold and silver. I'm looking at doing that. That's pretty exciting. 
You do this all under the umbrella of a tax-sheltered account. That's really fun. Text the word Just News to 989898 right now to get that free info kit from Birch Gold. Message and data rates may apply. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll have some breaking news and some more great guests. Keep an eye on Just the News. I think it's going to be a busy night. And we'll be back tomorrow to make sense of it all. And may God bless you. And God bless this extraordinary country, the United States. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. History, economics, the great works of literature, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Did you study these things in school? Probably not. Or even if you did, like I did, maybe it's time for a refresher. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it as America. That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subject. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, you heard me, for free. You don't get anything free in the Biden economy today. I personally recommend you sign up for the American Citizenship and its decline. It's with my good friend, the great historian, Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, VDH, as I like to call him, explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start whenever and wherever. So start your free course, American Citizenship and Its Decline, with my good friend, Victor Davis Hanson, today. How do you do that? Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash justnews to start. It's free and it's easy to get started and it's an easy URL to remember. All you got to do, go to hillsdale.edu slash justnews. One more time, hillsdale.edu slash justnews. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year and then the inflation data came out. Higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now.